This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Well, welcome to the seminar for this afternoon. My name is Nicholas Miller. I'm from Andrews University. I'm a professor in the seminary there in the church history department where I also direct uh, the Church State Study Center at Andrews. And I am presenting a series of lectures, presentations, um, Bible lessons, history lessons, on the topic of what would the Reformers say to today's church. And I'm glad to see so many people here who are interested in history. Uh, But this series of presentations isn't going to just be about history. It's going to involve looking at history to better understand a number of the issues and even conflicts and controversies that we have in the church today. Uh, My overall argument or thesis is that when we study the Bible, while we have to be personally convicted of truth ourselves, that we need to actually study the Bible in community with others. And I'll be going through and showing uh, how the Bible itself teaches that. But the suggestion is going to be that the community we need to study with is more than just those sitting in this room or attending GYC or in our churches at home, but to really study the Bible well and in a well-rounded way, in a healthy way, we can also study it with the Christians of ages past, the great Bible students of old, Why should the fact that somebody's dead stop them from contributing to the church's knowledge and understanding on a biblical topic? Um, And I think there are some Bible texts to support this, and I'll share those with you. But first, I want to give you an overview about where we're going uh, with this series of presentations so that you'll have a sense of what we're talking about over the next two days uh, that we've got to do this, two and a half days. Um, And it may be that one or more of these topics will interest you more than others, and I know there's many other presentations going on, so I want to let people know, hey, I'm really interested in this topic, creation or religious liberty or last day events. And so here we have a little outline that I'll put up at the beginning of every meeting just briefly. Um, Today I'm going to talk about the question of biblical authority, Many of the controversies in the church, whether it be to do with creation and evolution, the sanctuary, ordination, they all revolve around the question of how we approach and treat Scripture. What does sola scriptura mean? Uh, Everyone seems to claim that they speak, that they hold the Bible in high authority, but what does it really mean to do that? What does the Bible say about how the Bible should be treated in terms of other kinds of sources of information? There's some very practical questions about how we use the Bible in our own lives and in our own personal spiritual experiences. Tomorrow, uh, we will look at the great controversy theme. Uh, Is this something that's merely a product and stuck in the 19th century? Or does it continue to be of vital relevance today? And if so, how does it continue to be of relevance? Sunday afternoon, we'll look at the question of creation and evolution. There's been a lot of talk in our church over whether can we understand creation as being carried out over long periods of time. Can God be the creator and create through the processes of evolution? 
And that wouldn't be an atheistic view of, of uh, the world. It would be one where you believed in God, but with a different understanding of Genesis. What do, what do uh, the reformers have to say about that? And those of you interested in religious liberty, uh, which is in some ways my area of specialty, um, I'll tell a little bit more about my background, but I have uh, both a law degree and have practiced as a lawyer, and I do have a, um, an advanced degree in church history uh, and the uh, history of the church since the time of the Reformation. And so I'll have two sections that touch, touch on issues of church and state, liberty and morality. Where do we draw the line between keeping church and state separate? We don't want enforced days of worship. We don't want the government setting down spiritual standards. And yet many of us grow nervous when certain questions of morality are left untouched by the state. Like, is it all right just to have pornography everywhere? Or what about marriage? Can anyone marry anyone they want to under any circumstances? Are those moral questions? Can the government be involved in those? What do the reformers have to say to us? And I use the reformers quite broadly, not just to refer to Martin Luther or Calvin, I include them and Zwingli, but later reformers, Jacob Arminius, the Wesleys, nearly two centuries later, and even William Miller and Ellen White continue to be reformers in the church. So we'll be talking about this whole group of individuals. Um, on Monday, I'll also talk about Sunday laws, which is another religious liberty topic. A little update on what's happening in Europe and elsewhere, but also the question, are Sunday laws the only things we should be concerned about as far as a final test, the final part of the great controversy, or could a focus on Sunday laws stop us from missing some other important issues and questions? And then finally, on Monday afternoon, I want to look at the question of last generation theology, of the sanctuary, of the message of righteousness by faith and perfection, and what we can learn about those topics from understanding both the history of the Christian church and the history of our own church that I think can bring a greater sense of balance to these topics than we sometimes find. So I'm very excited about these topics. It's an adventure through history that will also be very modern and contemporary. And uh, I would like you to join me in bowing your heads, asking the Holy Spirit to be with us in our adventure together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of the Word of God. We also thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that helps us understand that Word and apply it to our lives. But we also thank you for the gift of your body, the church, that exists in this world that the Spirit and the Word work through to help us more fully understand truth and to help keep us from error. We pray that your Spirit may be on our time together here, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want this to be a little bit interactive. I'm going to try to pace my talk, so I have five or ten minutes left for questions at the end. Um, but it's also difficult to fit all the questions in sometimes. And so I want to invite people to also send questions in one of two ways. Feel free to use your cell phones and text me questions during my presentation, if you like. I won't answer immediately, but at the end, I will look at my phone and see if I have questions to respond to. Um, also, I have an email address there. Uh, email, you can have a little further reflection. I won't be able to answer that right now. But this evening, I'll look at email questions I've got. And at the beginning of the next presentation, I'll try to do a response to the main questions that I might get. So you'll note here, nicholas at andrews.edu. Nicholas is my first name. It's in the program. I teach at Andrews, so that's not a hard one to remember. 
or there's my cell phone number, 574-274-5207, and feel free to text me if you have a particular question. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of background about me, because one of the things you learn as a historian that you learn about truths, you speak about the past through the lens of your own experience. None of us can move away from and move outside our own bodies. We understand everything from our own point of view. Now, you can take this too far, and uh, modern thinkers have done this a bit in saying, therefore, we can never understand what truth is or anything about it. And I'm not saying that at all, because the Holy Spirit can bring us truth, but the Holy Spirit still brings truth to us where we are in our own time and place. And um, the experience of the individual with Christ is so important. I resonate with the words of 1 John, which says that, John says that we're sharing with you that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. Now, none of us here have touched Jesus in the flesh ourselves, but if we're Christians, we've had our own experiences with Jesus, haven't we? We've all walked the pathway, we've heard the voice, we've responded to the call. And whatever testimonies we give about the Bible, we give about history, uh, have to come through that personal experience that we've had with Christ. And so just a little bit about myself. I was raised in an Adventist family. I was baptized at the age of 13. I had a deeper conversion experience, probably about the age of 17, where I was at an Adventist school, but I came to realize that not everything everyone around me did was necessarily consistent with being a Christian, and I needed to make my own decisions. I needed to put everything that I wanted on the altar for God for him to take away or give back to me. And at the age of 17, I had a deeper conversion in this way and felt that I gave my all, had a total commitment to Christ. And I want to testify to you young people, one of the hardest things, I think, as a young person in doing this is that you have your own dreams and ambitions, things that you want to become and to do. And you feel like, if I give everything to Christ, I'm going to be doing a bunch of other things that are going to be much less interesting and much more boring. I'm not going to have this cool career of being a CPA accountant for one of the big seven firms in the country and... I guess this was my little fantasy. My father was an accountant. I know it's not a very interesting fantasy, perhaps, but that's what I grew up with. So, um, But what I discovered, when you put things on the altar for God, he replaces them with better things. You discover that your own ambitions are too small, your own desires too weak for what he, in fact, wants to give you. And... Uh, I suppose I have a longer testimony about an interesting life I've had, about God giving me more exciting, exalted, satisfying plans. I went on to law school in New York, uh, went to Washington, D.C., was involved in church and state, met the president, appeared before the Supreme Court, did many exciting things that I never dreamed or planned of when I was younger and before I committed my life to Christ. Um, I then went on and I was able to get a Ph.D. in church history, and now I have the best job in the world. Uh, teaching at the Adventist Seminary, and you're laughing, but it's a terrific job where you get to talk about the body of Christ as it appears in history to young people who care about the Bible and who care about Christ. And it's just an exciting, wonderful thing to do, and I enjoy it very much. But 
the part of my story that's relevant for today is the beginning of it. When I became 17 and said, I'm going to take the Bible, my commitment to Christ, seriously, I was soon faced with something of a dilemma because there were various groups around me that were reading the Bible quite differently. Um, I grew up in a moderately conservative Adventist family uh, who took the Bible seriously and the spirit of prophecy seriously. My father worked for the church, um, but um, they, uh, I, I was living in a larger community which was more culturally liberal. Um, Loma Linda, California, right? We went to Loma Linda Academy. And uh, there were certainly more liberal influences there. As I look back on it, I think my teachers were pretty centrist, but lots of the culture around me were pulling in different directions. And it became clear that not everyone took so seriously the Bible or the things the spirit of prophecy said. And the question was, which version of Adventism is like the one that is being faithful to what the real thing is? There's some books out there and, and, and articles. Will the real Seventh-day Adventist please stand up, right? And uh, it was a confusing time. This was back, I suppose, in the early to mid-'80s. And it was highlighted. I went to, uh, by an experience I had at Newbold College. It's where I first went uh, for my first year of college in England. And uh, had an enjoyable time there, some good professors there, but different influences on campus. Some that I would describe as more liberal, some that I would describe as more conservative, and some that were strongly conservative. And in looking back at that time, I see from these different groups different outcomes. Some of them quite sad. I had a cousin, I had the, it was a theology student friends around me, and a cousin who was devoted to ministry, wanted to be a youth pastor. Um, somehow, some more liberal influences in his thinking came to bear. And a few years later, he was essentially an agnostic, and he went into psychiatry, and now is a psychiatric counselor seeking solutions for the human problem through other means. I had friends on the other side who were taken by more, maybe more extreme conservative influences, who a few years later got caught up in prophecy uh, and went into what I would describe as fringe groups outside the organized church. Not that all groups outside the organized church are bad, but some of them are less healthy than others. And a two or three of my friends from that time ended up dying at Waco in the standoff between the Branch Davidians. And so here you have a kind of, in a nutshell summary, the gamut of possible outcomes when you want to take the Bible seriously um, but you take it seriously in the way certain groups are telling you to take it seriously, and maybe not in the way the Bible is telling you to take it seriously. So, over the last 20 years, I've had various experiences, and I've been able to study church history. And it's helped me understand my own church and my own upbringing and background. Where do these influences come from? Uh, what impact have they had on my church, and what impact have they had on my experiences in that church? And I want to share with you today and, the, and over the next several presentations some of the fruits of my studies. I'm going to give you the presentations that I wish I had when I was 17 or 21 so that I could understand the theological lay of the land in our church in a healthier way than perhaps I understood it then. And that it would have made me more capable of speaking both with my cousin who went off into atheism as well as my other friends who went off into the very conservative fundamentalist 
and lost their lives. These are life and death issues, both for this world and for eternity. And so I want to talk about history for a few minutes. And the question that comes up, especially when you're talking about Sola Scriptura, is why should we even listen to history or the Reformers? Sola Scriptura, many people believe, means you know, only the Bible, only the Scriptures. So if that's where we get our doctrines from, why do we really care what Martin Luther had to say or Calvin or Zwingli or Wesley or any of others? Let's just go right to the Word of God and drink directly from the springs of truth. Uh, isn't reading the Reformers just another kind of tradition? And we know what we think about tradition. That's from another church. That's not our church, right? That's not the way it's supposed to be. But is that always true? There's a problem about Scripture in that you have to read and interpret the Scriptures, don't you? And while we believe the Scriptures are perfectly infallible in the truth that they contain... Are you willing to say the same thing about your own interpretation of Scripture? Because if you are, then you're saying that your own judgment is perfectly infallible. And I think there's only one perfectly infallible understander of Scripture, and and that's Christ, and that's the Holy Spirit through Christ. And the question is, what presuppositions, what lenses are we reading the Bible through that we're not even conscious of? Now, some of this comes out when you start doing scriptural um, translation. If you've ever been involved in learning Greek, like uh, some of my friends here have, or or reading scripture in other languages, you know that there's a, a, a translation that you have to make from one to the other, and translation always contains ambiguity, doesn't it? And if you're talking about the bread of life in the West, you understand that that means the staple of our diet, the most, the central thing to it. But if you speak about the bread of life in, say, Asia or China, they may wonder what you're talking about. Because maybe rice is going to play the role that bread plays there, right? And I have an Asian friend here who's affirming uh, my point there. So um, culture is a little bit like fish in a fish tank. Do fish know that they're wet? They're there in it all the time. Unless they get stranded outside, they don't really know, in fact, that there's water around them. And culture is that way to us in some ways. Why do we feel men compelled to wear a suit and a tie or women a dress or a skirt when they're on the platform at church? This is something our culture tells us is an article of respect, right? And this is the the lens that we see this through, and we would uh, view it uh, somewhat askance if somebody just came up in in uh, jeans and and a t-shirt. But in another culture, in another time, in another place, that may be less of a problem. Now, what does this mean? Um, Why don't women wear hats in church anymore? The Apostle Paul, in fact, said that you should wear hats in church, ladies, and I didn't see a lot of you with hats today at the main auditorium. We somehow recognize that some of these things are products of our culture. So where does the Holy Spirit come in this? A good response to the difficulties of interpretation and the fact that you can't be sure of your interpretation is the Holy Spirit, right? Christ promised us the Holy Spirit so that despite these interpretive difficulties, we could understand the Bible. And we have that promise in Scripture. 
Um, when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. John 16, 13. But let me ask you this. Does the Holy Spirit ever use other people as a tool to help us understand scriptures? Now, how many of you here became fully knowledgeable of all the doctrines of the Seventh-day Adventist Church through just studying the Bible on your own? Anybody? There's like nobody here, and yet we believe in solar scripture. Just give me the Bible and I'll sit down and I'll, we'll find, no. It never seems to happen that way. It's always the Holy Spirit leading people through other people. And so we have these uh, illustrations from the New Testament. Matthew 18, 19 is very powerful in this regard. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. In that context, we usually think of it as prayer, but it's prayer about the application of church teaching and doctrine to individual behavior. And so there's this promise of a sort of special presence of God in reading scripture and trying to understand it in community. Christ on the road to Emmaus with the disciples. He shields his identity, doesn't he, from the disciples that he's walking with so he can engage them with scriptural study. So his authority isn't the thing that persuades them, this is important, that they're still encountering the scripture for themselves, but they're doing it in community with others. Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch is another example. He's reading Isaiah and not understanding. Somebody has to come and explain. Um, Priscilla and Aquila teaching Apollos the way of God more perfectly. He's preaching, he's in the word, but Priscilla and Aquila are necessary to help him. Now why is that? Part of the reason that is, is because all of us have our own sets of glasses, these cultural biases, the baggage that we have, and in sharing with others who have different perspectives, we can see where we're misunderstanding, misapprehending something about our background, our culture, our intellectual makeup, has caused us to read the scripture incorrectly. So it's not that we're taking the authority of the other person, it's that the other person is helping us see a limitation in our own life and makeup. And the question is, why would we limit, so you can see the importance of group Bible study, that it doesn't take away from the fact of individual conviction, but studying with others is an imperative from the Bible. Our individual convictions are informed as part of this conversation. So why would we limit this conversation to only the living? Because in fact, the living are the closest to us culturally and socially. But those that are dead and have written many years ago are writing from a time and a place that is very different from where we are. And reading those writings could perhaps tell us things about the limitations and the blind spots and the shortcomings of our own time and place that we wouldn't otherwise see. And I think we see this reflected, and this becomes a theme text for my series of presentations. Um, uh, Paul, in Hebrews... Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Now notice, this is sort of an appeal to the saints of all the ages. And we know that other church make an appeal to the saints of all the ages too. But the focus here isn't on the saints who are, who are our eyes fixed on, Christ, right? We're trying to understand Christ more fully and worship him more fully, and he's the authority. But we have this great cloud of, what is the word used? Witnesses. Witnesses that are witnessing to the truth. Now, if you read Hebrews 11, is this great cloud of witnesses living or dead? 
They're the ones, they're the faithful that were stoned and sawn in half. And these are the faithful of the ages. And Paul, if he'd been writing later on, would have been talking also about the faithful of Christian history who have been faithful to God. These are witnesses. They are not authorities to us, but they are witnesses to what the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ. And do you see that distinction? Do you see the difference between a historical witness and a historical authority? The historical authority would be saying, because Martin Luther said it, it must be true and it's authority for me. That would be church tradition and that would not be consistent with Protestantism. But a historical witness would be, ah, Luther saw this aspect of the book of Romans that I hadn't considered before. Let me consider it. And his, it's like I'm in dialogue with him. His witness can help me see the authority of Scripture in a different way. This is an important point because I want to talk about witnesses and tradition in this context. Now, I want to talk to you about Adventism a little bit. We've talked generally about history and how... Um, understanding the reformers can help us today. But I want to talk about some of the cultural and social biases of our day. And this is where we come to understand the church that I and many of you were raised in and the church we continue to have where we feel like there's this liberal, conservative conflict and not much middle ground. And I think there's much more middle ground than perhaps we're aware of, and seeing this history can help us see this. We in the 20th century, to put a whole lecture or even series of lectures in a very short uh, few sentences, we live in an age of scientism, of empiricism, individualism and consumerism, materialism, evolutionism, and many more. We've moved away from a reliance on authorities, where it be the ancient Greeks and the classics, or the authority of the Bible. Everything is tested and measured and scientifically. These are the new high priests of our society. The Christian church hasn't embraced that model because that doesn't fit with the Bible, and yet we've been impacted by it. And we've had to respond to it. And we've responded to it in one of two different ways. And I'm talking about larger Christianity, not just Adventism, but at the beginning of the 20th century, in the early 1900s, there was a split in American Protestantism between two different groups. One that said, we can show that the Bible itself is this, meets the scientific empirical test. The Bible is perfect. It was given in perfect language, inerrantly given, and it can give us the highest level of scientific certainty. Now this is interesting because it's not clear that the Bible itself teaches this in the same kind of way. If, if, in fact, you had absolute proof of certain truths, would you really need faith? What would be faith in the face of absolute perfect demonstration? Um, but this group developed, you may have heard of the um, verbal theory of the verbal inspiration of Scripture, right? That every word was dictated by God. This developed during this time, and it was not formally accepted by Adventism largely because Ellen White said this isn't the way inspiration works. Inspiration works on a man and his thoughts, and he is guided by the Holy Spirit but is allowed to choose his own words. And then there's copying that takes place, and this copying can produce some discrepancies, not anything that would mislead anyone on doctrines or salvation, but you can't make out that it's absolutely 100% without any discrepancy. Ellen White herself says this. 
But this fundamentalist impulse to say, no, the scriptures can be absolutely proven in this objective way, led to this movement called fundamentalism in the 20th century, which was an influence on Adventism. And despite most of the church not accepting verbal inspiration, in theory, many of us accepted it in practice. And what happened, we also applied that to Ellen White. And in the 1940s and 50s, we sort of had this vision of Ellen White being the perfect prophet who never said anything but that wasn't perfectly, absolutely proven directly from God. And then in the 1970s, when people began to find way, there were some sources used here and there were things not directly from God. It shattered the faith of some people who'd had this artificially high view that wasn't a view held by Ellen White or Willie White or people who knew how Ellen White worked, but it was allowed to come into the church through what you might call the fundamentalist movement. And there was a response to that why the other influence in Christianity called the liberal movement. And the liberal movement said this. No, the Bible, they were a bit more realistic about the Bible. There's all this copying that's taken place. There's some discrepancies. We can't prove it absolutely certain. The only thing we can know for certain is our own experience. Our own experience. And so they based their certainty on experience and feeling. And they didn't really believe much about Bible miracles and Bible truths. And it was just, uh, and you're familiar with a larger Christianity that has walked away from miracles and believing in a six-day creation and all these things because the emphasis is on the experience. Has Adventism been influenced by this? Well, in the 70s, there was a reaction against this fundamentalism. And so we had the rise of certain magazines in the church and at some of our educational institutions, a kind of movement by some into dealing with the problems of empiricism and scientism by taking the liberal route. And we do indeed have some of that in our church today. But the good news, so here's a little summary of this divide. So the liberals embrace science and reason and put religious authority into the realm of subjective feeling. The Bible becomes a record of people's experiences with God, but not a source of truth and authority for today. The fundamentalists put religious authority into the perfect, inerrant, verbally inspired Bible, and the center of their Christianity becomes understanding truths perfectly and less of an emphasis on the experience of the truths. It's about orthodoxy and being right. And have we ever had a problem with an overemphasis on that in our church sometimes? We sometimes go from one extreme to another, don't we? Either throwing truth out and not caring about it or making, in fact, too much of it and not allowing room for experience. Well, the good news is that Adventism at its core is neither liberal nor fundamentalist. There is a middle road that isn't a compromise, but that in fact is the biblically uh, uh, balanced position that... um, Okay, I've already... Am I going backwards? Let me see. I need to go forwards. So... Ellen White and fundamentalism. There is one a statement from the book Steps to Christ that opened my eyes to all this history that I'd been reading. And I said, wow, this is so simple, and it's something that I've been familiar with since I was a young teenager, and yet it answers these great philosophical questions that society has been struggling with. You've probably read this quote before, but maybe not in this particular context. God never asks us to believe without giving sufficient evidence upon which to base our faith. His existence, his character, the truthfulness of his word 
are all established by testimony that appeals to our reason, and this testimony is abundant. So she's not agreeing with the liberals who say it's just all about experience. She's saying, no, there's evidence in the real world about prophecy and about God's creation, and we can look at that, and it can give us a level of assurance. And yet, what does she say next? Yet God has never removed the possibility of doubt. Our faith must rest upon evidence, not demonstration. Now, this is a truly radical thing for Ellen White to say in her day, because all the fundamentalists are saying, we can prove to you absolutely that the Bible is infallible and accurate and perfect. And here she says, no, we cannot demonstrate it. There's evidence. And she is taking a more moderate position than, in fact, we would later take on. Now, she doesn't end there because she doesn't want to leave people with just a kind of level of evidence. What about certainty? Isn't certainty not important in the Christian life? So she goes on and she says, there is an evidence that is open to all, the most highly educated and the most illiterate, the evidence of experience. God invites us to prove for ourselves the reality of his word, the truth of his promises. And as we draw near to Jesus and rejoice in the fullness of his love, our doubt and darkness will disappear in the light of his presence. So does Ellen White care about your experience and your feelings? And that yes, she does. But you see, it's the two together. What happened in Christianity is these two were separated. The liberals went with the experience and the feeling, and the, and the fundamentalists went with the proposition and the truth. And in reality, the two were always meant to be together. Now, it seems so simple and elementary, but when you have cultural forces pushing you one way or the other, the tendency is to, to, to roll with the punches and to grab one or the other. But she had this inspired insight which showed her the importance of both. And so we have what we call... A certainty, not an objective certainty, but not just a subjective certainty either. I call it a holistic certainty, where there's evidence and proposition of Scripture, which are not absolutely and objectively verifiable, when combined with our experiences uh, of His Word and promises, gives us a certainty that we can depend and rest our lives on. But you can see that this is a middle position that embraces neither of these other extremes. And we need each other in a community like this because some of us, by our makeup and our training, lean more one way or the other. Like I went to law school and I'm somewhat analytical, so I'm sort of drawn to the provident-positional evidential side. Others are more reflective and feeling and nurture-oriented and they tend towards the uh, experiential side. And in a community, we need each other, don't we? And what happens when a community starts getting divided? so that the propositional people will only hang out with each other and the experienced people will only hang out with each other and they argue that in fact the other side are fundamentalists or the other side are liberals and they won't have fellowship with each other any longer and you then develop these extremes uh, rather than having a fellowship which provides a balance that we need from both sides. And unfortunately this has happened somewhat in our own church. Um, it's not speaking too much out of school because it's a public thing that goes on every year. We have two theological societies in the church. There's a conservative one that's more propositionally oriented, and there's a more liberal one that tends to focus more on uh, experience. And, and I have friends in both groups, and my feeling is while there's some people on the fringes of both groups that probably really aren't in the Adventist church, 
that most of them are within the boundaries of what we believe, and they would be helped by fellowshipping together. And fortunately, in the last few years, there's been an effort and attempts made to bring those groups together, and there has been more fellowshipping going on. And we need this community for both individual and community balance. Now, given that historical background, I now want to talk about the first doctrine here, sola versus solo scriptura, because it's really all about scripture and learning about these things. History is important, reason is important, but we have an ultimate standard, and that is scripture. But what does sola scriptura mean? How does scripture, how is it supposed to relate to other sources of information, the natural world, what other reformers say, what Ellen White says, what our own experience tells us? Um, Does it mean that Scripture is the only source of truth about God? A lot of people think that's, that's what it means. You can only learn about God or religious things through the Bible. In that case, is sola scriptura in conflict? Have you heard of prima scriptura? What does prima scriptura mean? Primary authority. But if you say prima scriptura, it sort of implies there's other sources of information, right? So some people want to pit prima scriptura versus sola scriptura. You know, that you have to believe in sola scriptura and the prima scriptura people are compromising by allowing other sources of information. What is the proper relationship here? And now I want to get to a reformer to make this point. Martin Luther, standing before the powers, civil and ecclesiastical of his world in 1521 at the Diet of Worms. He's been asked to recant. His books have been placed before him in a pile. Uh, He's asked for time to consider them. Uh, He's been given time. He comes back. He's asked to take them back. And he makes a fairly long speech, which I won't share with you the whole thing, but he basically says there's a lot of truth In what I've written, I can't take that back. Um, There's some things maybe I've said in an insulting way, and I'll take back the style in which I said it, but I can't take back the truth that I said. And as far as the rest of them are concerned, I'll take back anything that you can show me from Scripture is wrong. But he put it in this language. Unless I'm convicted of error by the testimony of Scripture or by manifest reasoning... I stand convicted by the scriptures to which I have appealed, and my conscience is taken captive by God's word. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to act against our conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. On this I take my stand, I can do no other. God help me, amen. So this is a great resounding statement and stand and declaration that we Protestants resonate to. But how many of you noticed that he didn't just stand on scripture, but manifest reasoning, too. What's up with that? He didn't just say, prove me wrong by Scripture. He also said, well, look, if there's something completely illogical or fallacious, I'll also back down there as well. Did Martin Luther believe in sola scriptura, or did he believe in other sources of truth and information? It seems that he was open to being shown to be wrong by uh, manifest reasoning, as he put it. Now, if you look further at the Reformers, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Melanchthon, Arminius, they all proclaim sola scriptura, yet they quote freely from the church fathers and creeds in support of their doctrines and practices. But they make clear that these fathers and creeds are only in authority 
insofar as they agree with Scripture, right? So Scripture is an ultimate authority, but Luther and these Reformers are willing to show that these uh, church fathers, that reason support their positions, but they're holding them subject to Scripture. A later Reformer, John Wesley, who Ellen White speaks very highly of, would talk about four ways of knowing about truth and God. And these were the four elements, Scripture, reason, experience, and tradition. Now, it's been come to be known as the Wesleyan quadrilateral, and Wesley himself didn't use that name, uh, and I don't think he would have used it, because saying Wesleyan quadrilateral sort of implies that the four are somehow equal sources of information and truth, and you mix and match them. But Wesley clearly held the Bible as the superior uh, source of information. And um, it would look more like this. I maybe call it the scriptural stool, where the, where the Bible is the, the platform that you sit on, and we're looking at the stool from the top down, and it has three legs, reason, experience, and tradition or witness. The experience of individuals uh, in looking at the world around us uh, um, reason in, in applying that experience in understanding the Bible uh, and the, the tradition and the witness of other church members and reformers in helping us understand the scriptures. Now, what does sola scriptura really mean then? Sola means by scripture alone. Solo scripture would mean solely scripture and there is a Protestant heritage and tradition that says sola scriptura, by scripture alone, means that every other source of information is measured by scripture alone, and that all doctrines of the church are based in scripture alone. But if you think for a moment, for instance, 1844 in the sanctuary, could you arrive at that truth and that information based solely on the scripture? How do you know the dates that the, uh, the decree was sent out uh, for the rebuilding of Jerusalem? We don't actually know those dates internally from Scripture. We can only arrive at dates in prophecy by the use of historical information from outside Scripture. Now, that information is subject to Scripture, and it's not meant to overrule Scripture, but it implements and enriches and, in fact, is a critical part of defining some of these doctrines that are based in Scripture. So sola scriptura becomes by Scripture. I would suggest that solo scriptura is a counterfeit which says you can only ever study uh, truths about God, about prophecy, no other sources of information except the Bible. Now, some people claim to do that, but what you'll discover is that they're smuggling in other sources of information uh, without being open about it or admitting to it. And you actually come to uh, worse outcomes in studying the Scripture. Now, the question is, this is what the, uh, in, in applying church standards, we need experience of culture. Doctrines require reasoning and thought. If we believed in solo Scriptura, really, the pastor would get to the front of the room and just start reading the Bible. Right? That would be scripture. He's using his creative processes, his reason, his experience to understand and apply scripture. 
This is really the only meaningful way that it can operate. So sola scriptura is actually something that is harmonious with prima scriptura. Sola scriptura says based in scripture, measured by scripture. Prima scriptura says measured by the ultimate authority of scripture. And then, of course, you have the third one, tota scriptura, which means you bring all of scripture to bear on particular questions. So these three principles aren't separate competing principles. They are three descriptions of the scripture principle that came out of the Protestant Reformation. And you will find all of these used in a similar way by Ellen White. What is the book, The Great Controversy, if not an examination of church history and the teachings of reformers to show their witness and their experience in carrying out biblical truth? So what I'm saying shouldn't be so strange. It's just that when we get into these wars in the church, with one side insisting that sola scriptura means only solo scriptura, you can get an extreme on one side in reaction to an extreme on the other side. And we can't overlook this balanced middle ground. Now let's look at the Bible a bit. Just because the Reformers believed it doesn't mean it's true. But throughout the Bible, you have texts which appeal to God's truth in nature. Romans 1.20, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. The Bible itself teaches that a knowledge of God can be found in nature and outside the Bible. Now, I'm not saying it's suggesting that a fully adequate knowledge of God or that the plan of salvation with Jesus Christ can be found in nature. No, it doesn't say that, does it? But a knowledge of God so that you know the difference between good and evil. Uh, The Old Testament teaches the same thing. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. So people without the written Bible still have access to a revelation of God through nature. The Bible and reason. God says in Isaiah, come let us reason together. Christ expounded or explained or reasoned with the two disciples from the road to Emmaus about the prophecies. And Paul went and reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue. We have to use our reason also to decide when the Bible is being literal or symbolic. Why do we say dragons in the Bible are symbols of something? If not the fact that we know that dragons, flying, fire-breathing dragons don't exist and where we have to read it symbolically. This is using information from outside. Christ's Sermon on the Mount. If your eye causes you to sin, you should pluck it out. And if your hand causes you to sin, you should cut it off. How do you know that he's not being literal there, if not in application of some kind of common sense that he's using metaphor and exaggeration to make a point? Now, there have been a few Christians throughout history who have actually decided this is literal and made themselves eunuchs or... But I would not advise this. And uh, I can see that most of you, in fact, don't follow this. The Jerusalem Council, we've been studying Acts uh, as, as our main theme here, and there's a wonderful example of where people bring together both Scripture from the Old Testament, but what also is brought to bear are the experiences that Paul and Barnabas have had with the Gentiles, right? That these uncircumcised were actually filled with the Holy Spirit. And this experience that we've had is part of the discussion we have about what the church should do in terms of baptism and requirements of circumcision and clean and unclean meats. So the Bible 
and uh, tradition, witness, the um, uh, witnesses from the past are very important in scriptural study. And it's important to think about traditions that we have because we do have traditions. Sabbath school and church times. Where do you find, in fact, uh, Sabbath school uh, starting at 9.30 in the Bible and, and church service at 11, and yet most of our churches do this? Camp meetings, potluck, kind of some principles can be found in the Bible. But if we don't recognize that the church can actually create some of its own traditions, we then take these things as doctrines and we can never change them. Have you had this experience in your church before when you try to start the, change the start of Sabbath school time or do something a little different? It's almost as though you're moving the, the ark from the most holy place, right? And it's because we disregard tradition altogether, and so whatever our traditions are become actually doctrines of the church. And they're not. We do have traditions that aren't meant to be normative. Ellen White said this about our education. She believed in studying scripture. But she made a very important point. She said there's three things that we should especially study in our schools. And uh, other than the things we normally study. And notice what these three things are. The plans devised and carried out for the education of our youth are none too broad. They should not have a one-sided education, but all their powers should receive equal attention. Moral philosophy, the study of the scriptures, and physical training should be combined with the studies usually pursued in schools. Every power, physical, mental, and moral, needs to be trained and disciplined uh, so they may render its highest service. Now, have you seen this statement before? Three things you should study. The Bible, we would understand that. Physical education and nutrition. But moral philosophy... How many of you have had a class in moral philosophy? It's like I've gone through Adventist education from uh, you know, K through college, and I once took a course in political philosophy, I think, but it took me a while to figure out what moral philosophy was. And basically, in the 19th century, it was a Protestant way of learning about right and wrong, truth and error, morality, from sources of information outside the Bible. That was the definition. You looked at human nature, human experience, you looked at the way people interacted, at civilizations, and you could understand and support moral arguments in society. We have lost sight of this almost in the Adventist church, so we come to a day and an age where there are all sorts of pressing public moral concerns, like gay marriage and abortion and some issues we're going to talk about at some later meetings, and we almost have nothing to say because we only know how to argue from the scripture. And yet when we're talking in the public square, when we're talking about what laws should be passed, we can't go using scripture because we have a separation of church and state, right? Scripture is a position that we, we believe in scripture because of our faith. But Ellen White understood she was someone who argued for moral positions in society. Have you heard of the prohibition movement, temperance reform? Ellen White was a strong arguer for the outlawing of alcohol through the use of laws, not just education. So she understood and applied not just principles from Scripture, but also these moral principles that we can gain from experience and reason and nature. And she said this is one of the three things that we should study. And we have a deficit here 
that we need to make up and maintain. In some ways, we've gone so far out of our way to be solo scriptura that we've actually cut the influence of scripture off from our other disciplines and from being able to talk about it to our larger society. Because you see, there's an overlap between scripture and moral philosophy that would allow us to speak about some of our scriptural truths in terms of a language and an approach that our community and our neighbors could understand. So, we must maintain the Bible as the central role in our system of truths, as being the sole basis of doctrine and the final judge of our sources of knowledge. But we can't deprive the Bible of other supporting truths of, from God's other book. Haven't we heard about God's two books? We learn about that in Cradle Roll, and then we forget about that first book. It was actually the church fathers believed that nature was the first book. We think it's about having Sabbath afternoon nature walks. But no, it's about learning about God and being able to speak about it, not to displace the Bible, but to supplement it and to be able to communicate with our society about it. Our community of faith, both present and past, should provide a reality check on our own readings of Scripture. And just to conclude where I began, and I'll leave a few minutes here for questions and answers, that the importance, I've tried to bring out the role that Scripture needs to play with other truths, but also the role that Scripture needs to play in our study with the communities that we belong to. And that God has a body on this earth to help keep us all accountable. And that we need to beware of small, eccentric, historically agnostic sub-communities that use solo scriptura, or solo scriptura and solo spirit of prophecy, as a cover or a shield for their own peculiar and private interpretations of Scripture. There's a very important text in Peter which says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Scripture is from the Spirit, who also provides the community of faith with an understanding of that Scripture. Now, there is progressive truth, and we do recover truths like the Sabbath. Uh, small communities can be right, but they are in dialogue with a larger community of the faithful and in dialogue with the Scripture. We have witnesses to the Sabbath throughout the history of the Christian church. Often they're very small, but they're important, and they continue to be important. But if this had been understood by my friends at Newbold, if they hadn't just gone out and latched onto interpretations of Scripture that were held by a few individuals that had no connection with God's larger church here on earth or historically then maybe they would be in active ministry today instead of teaching secular psychology or dead in Texas. And so this is an important question of interpretation and of community, of being held personally accountable for truth, but exploring that truth in communion with the Holy Spirit and with others. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.